you would, please take your Bibles out and open them up to the book of Daniel, where we resume our study this morning, just behind Ezekiel and just before Hosea there in the Old Testament, in the prophetic literature in the Old Testament. As you know, if you've been meeting with us or followed along on the internet, we have been working our way through Daniel. Now we're in chapter 2 this morning, where we resume the study of the dream, the first dream that we come to in this book, but not the last, of course. Daniel is, we'll, we'll deal with some other dreams here as the book unfolds, but this morning we continue to look at how Daniel is dealing with this dream. Nebuchadnezzar, if you remember, remembers the chapter started, had gone to his wise men and said he'd had this dream, but he would not give them the dream. He said, if you really want to show yourself legitimate and genuine, you tell me the dream and then tell me the interpretation, and by telling me the dream... I know that your interpretation of the dream will be authentic. That was his expectation, which as the wise men noted and even Daniel noted, we saw last week, it's impossible. It was impossible. Nobody could do that. Let me say this. No man, no human being could do what Nebuchadnezzar had demanded of these wise men, which is why Daniel so eloquently answered the king in verse 27 of chapter 2 that no wise man, enchanter, magician, or astrologer can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. But, he said, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in latter days. So we, we talked about Daniel, of course, the humility of not trying to take credit for himself, but also giving glory to God in a moment where it was absolutely essential to give glory to God to acknowledge that what you're saying is impossible. Your wise men told you correctly. It's not possible to do what you've demanded, not with man, but with God, all things are possible. And so this morning we're getting into the dream itself. Of course, there is a, there's historic, historical significance to the dream. We must acknowledge that. But there's also a significance of God making a proclamation to this pagan king that's primarily important. More than, more than the history, more than the human history that's revealed in this dream, a very accurate accounting, I might say, there is a, a deeper message that is far more important than us getting the different versions of the statue right. And the more important message is the supremacy of God, the supremacy of God in a world that does not acknowledge him by and large. So this morning, without further delay, I want us to turn our attention. We have a longer text of Scripture to cover this morning. It is the dream itself. We will be looking at Daniel chapter 2, verses 31 to 49. Beloved of God, this is God's infallible, inerrant word. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image, the image mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, in its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall rise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth." 
And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all, th- all these. And as you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft of clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with the soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. This dream is certain and its interpretation sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. So ends the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing. Please pray. Father, thank you for this word, its power, its beauty, its truth. Open up our minds and hearts to receive it, I pray. Transform us, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. One of the things that makes Aragorn from the Lord of the Rings, <laughs> hey, it's been a while, <laughs> such a fascinating character to me from a literary standpoint is how his, how his identity is portrayed. When you think about his identity, if you've read the books or seen the movies, you know that whether he's dressed poorly and looking ragged or towards the end he's dressed royally and looking regal, There's little doubt about Aragorn's character. He's the true king. He's the king, and people see his nobility no matter what he looks on the outside. They see it in the way that he carries himself. They see it in the way that he responds in dire circumstances. They see it in the way that he treats people. When he comes to Gondor and people are broken by the power of evil, they see it in the way that he has healing hands. He's able to heal what evil has made sick. And destroyed. And, and this, these marks, these marks of character, these marks of power, whether he looks one way or another, they mark him out. They make him stand out in the story. So that when you first meet this character early on, you know there's something different. You know there's something deeper. He's not weak. He's not capricious. He's not to be, com- he's, he's incomparable to the other men in the city of Gondor where he rules who are weaker. No, he is something far better. His whole life exudes one truth. He is the true king. He is the true king. When we look at this dream that Nebuchadnezzar has had, we, we, we know that that dream exudes one truth, one thing that we take away from that. Despite what we think historically about the image and and the successive kingdoms that will follow Babylon, the primary thing you are to take away is there's one true king, and it's not Nebuchadnezzar. It's Yahweh. It's the Lord. It's the king of heaven. 
What's said in Daniel 2, this, this whole chapter, specifically what we're looking at this morning, could be said of the whole book. Yahweh, the Lord, shows himself as the true king of all. That's the point. Often in this book, God will show and does show and is already showing the temporariness of kingdoms and kings. They come, they go. We've already been told that of him, that he removes kings, he places kings, that God sees the temporary nature of hu- the human condition and humans in general. But what we're, what we're seeing in Daniel is not just that. We're seeing it in comparison with the eternality of God, that man is temporary. Nebuchadnezzar, you will come and you will go. The kingdom of silver, uh, Persia, and then Greece and Rome, they will come and they will go. But what does not change is the reign of Yahweh, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So this compels us to put the power of man in its proper perspective. What are we living for? What, what What is true power? I've said this before, so often humans associate power with the power of death. Someone is powerful if they can take a life. Anybody can take a life. And I'm not suggesting that it's an easy thing or a minimal thing to take a life, but taking life is not power. What God shows is that giving life, being life itself, that's power. To be able to conquer death, that's power. To be able to conquer all the natural world, which Jesus displayed in his miracles, that's power. Not merely taking a life. Kings and kingdoms, so often in history, they flex their muscles. We're the best, we're the greatest. We are supreme. But Daniel shows us that all of it, no matter what it seems in a moment, is subservient to God. That they will come and they will go. God remains. We come, we go. That's why the writer of Ecclesiastes tells us that life is a vapor. Life is a vapor. Isaiah says life is a vapor. The whole Bible confirms that life is a vapor. Human life. Nebuchadnezzar's dream says... Ascribe glory to God. Why? For what purpose? Because only the kingdom of God endures. We often, or often, this present chapter, it tempts us to get lost in the details. And there's a lot of details here. There really is. But we can get so lost in the details that we miss the most important part of this picture. Much ink has been spilt on who the kingdoms represent. Who is the, well, the kingdom of gold is identified, so there's no doubt about that. That's Babylon's Nebuchadnezzar. Who are, who are the silver? Who are the bronze? Who are the iron mixed with clay? And I'm not suggesting that those aren't important details, but those are not the most important details. It doesn't matter. How we understand those doesn't affect the overall message of the dream itself. And I do think there is a message there, and I do think they are easily identified, but that's not the most important thing. The most important thing, really is the stone not cut by human hands that crushes the image, that grows into a mountain, and that fills the whole earth. Whether it's Rome, whether it's Timbuktu, whether it's Africa or Europe, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. What does matter is how we understand the stone that crushes them and fills the whole earth and remains. That's the most important part of this dream. So the goal is to show the endurance and supremacy of the kingdom of God, even as humans come and go. So with those thoughts in mind, there's really one idea I want for us to see, and it's this, that God has complete authority over kingdoms in human history. That God, our God, Yahweh, has complete authority over kingdoms in human history. Kind of speaking of Lord of the Rings and, and Tolkien's fascination with Norse mythology, 
It's interesting, if you've not read much of Norse mythology, I invite you to do it. It's, it's great. It's, it's, it's a good read. It's, and some of it is, is entertaining and interesting to see the concepts that men come up with. But in Norse mythology, one of the things you have, uh, you know, you have supreme gods in some sense, but not in the way that Christianity views it, because you have a pantheon of gods who control different things. One of the things in Norse mythology is the three sisters who are the weavers of the web of fate. Every person's life is tied into what they do, and they twist that web, and they twist that web, and that kind of guides how your life is. There's, in some sense, it's capricious. There's not a lot of rhyme or reason to it. But at the end of the day, humanity, our Norse, our Norse forebears in the faith, or our Norse forebears, rather, not in the faith, they thought of life as purely a fate and chance. And so there are ways that which you could bribe gods to get what you wanted to make fate work out in your favor. Why am I mentioning this? Because in the absence of, of a true objective truth about Yahweh, men are going to come up with something that makes sense of the world. Nebuchadnezzar had done it. The enchanters, the astrologers, the magicians had done it with astrology. I've told you this before. Where do we think of astrological signs and what they mean? Where does it come from? Right here in Babylon. Those, those, those forebears in that astrological uh, table began it. And so in the absence of true religion, in the absence of the worship of God, humans will improvise. They will come up with something. Why? Because they understand that something beyond myself needs to be in control. Because if it's left to me, I'm temporary, I'm nothing. What is Daniel saying to Nebuchadnezzar? There is something, there is someone who's in complete control, who is not temporary, who is eternal. He's not capricious. He's not weaving a web of fate for you. He has a preordained plan. When we look at this, the primary focus here in this particular paragraph is the kingdom of God. That's exactly, we could say that about just about every place in Daniel, but it's the, the kingdom of God. And Daniel kind of saying there is no power, there is no authority that can rival God's power and authority. Now, Daniel was talking about something that would ultimately come to fruition in the incarnation. When Jesus comes to the earth, even the demons tremble at him. Nature, he can control nature. If he can steal the storm, he can multiply food, he can raise people from the dead. Daniel begins to, or, or uh, Jesus rather, begins to embody the very principles that Daniel is talking about God in this dream. And so when we think about the stone not cut by hands that comes to crush the image, we can't think of that and not think of Jesus in some way, shape, or form as being a major piece in that, pu in that puzzle, a major piece in the puzzle of the stone and what it's meant to do. And so when we look at this, we kind of, this chapter, these verses kind of break down really into three sections. Verses 31 through 36 are about the dream. They talk specifically about the dream, and that's kind of where they are. And what has Daniel already told us, but that by the power of God, by the power of Yahweh, he makes the dream known to Nebuchadnezzar. And it's interesting, here in Aramaic, some older translations saw a great statue. ESV uses the word image, and I'm glad it does. Image is a, is a much better uh, word there from the Aramaic. And what is the image getting at. Well, that word image there in Aramaic would have been the word they used for idol. Why bring that up? Well, what Daniel is looking at, the, the image, the statue that Nebuchadnezzar sees is not, not necessarily an idol per se. It is a dream of representation, but Daniel is identifying something at a deeper level on Nebuchadnezzar's heart. Why does he use this word? 
What is Nebuchadnezzar guilty of ultimately? Idol, idol, idolization. Who? Well, mainly himself. That's why he's the head of gold. So when Daniel talks about this idol, let's say this image that is raised up in his mind, there's a reason he uses that word. Because the stone not cut by hands that crushes this is showing us in some capacity the futility of idolatry. You are an idol worshiping king. And you need to know that those idols are so weak that it takes one stone to crush it and to obliterate it from human history. And so it's interesting the way that Daniel describes it. I give you kind of a literal translation, a great image that's greatly bright and great in appearance. Frightening is the sense of the word, but this kind of this triplication of this word great is trying to get at this image is nothing to scoff at this image is huge it's terrifying but like that it can be crushed it's a powerful dream i want you to notice if you do in the dreams you look the way he describes from the head to chest to uh, thighs and feet and toes the metals that he uses they are decreasing in value as it goes down you know gold silver bronze and iron so as they decrease in value, but notice what they are doing. They're growing in strength. They're growing in durability. So they're not as precious as the statue descends, but they are a little bit stronger. Silver is a little bit stronger than gold. Bronze is a little bit stronger than silver. Iron is stronger than bronze, and so forth and so on. Now, of course, the fly in the ointment is the mixture of clay, which we'll get to here in just a moment. So as he lays all this out in those opening verses... And he says in verse 34, which is to me, verse 34 and 44 really are primary. As you looked, a stone was, was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet and of, of iron and clay, and it broke them in pieces. And the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like chaff in the summer threshing floors. Now, so the stone comes, and it's not cut by hands. What is Daniel telling us? Clearly, this is divine. It's coming from God. This is not something made by any human. In other words, the destruction of these successive kingdoms is not that one more kingdom of man is going to come and destroy them. This is something that's coming from God. This is something divine that is unleashed on all the kingdoms of man. It destroys the image. And not only does it destroy the image, but look. It supplants it, but the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So it's not just wiping the slate clean. It's wiping the slate clean and establishing something that's better. But look how the stone, the stone is given no precious metals. It's given no precious gems. It is a stone, one that comes humbly, one that comes in the appearance of something maybe of less value, but growing in strength and growing in glory and growing in majesty to where it is not the image, but it fills the whole world. It's a powerful picture that Daniel is painting. The image that we're talking about here that Nebuchadnezzar had seen, it becomes as dust. I just said this, blown away. What does that mean? Well, easily interpreted as temporary. What else does it mean? That the gold, no matter how precious, the silver, no matter how precious, the bronze, no matter how precious, those things have no lasting value. They're pretty to look at. They're pretty ornaments. They have monetary value. But what is the value in the grand scheme of humanity? Zero. Nothing. Because they are temporary. 
So what is Daniel telling you right here? If we were just given verses 31 to 36, we could easily discern that what Daniel is telling us is that the greatness of God and his kingdom is superior to all that's ever been. It is superior to all that has ever been. But Daniel doesn't stop there. So he's given us the dream. Well, we have the dream. And so then he kind of, then on verses 37 really to 45, he begins to work out the interpretation. And so by the same power that Daniel saw the dream, he sees the interpretation. So again, God gives Daniel the dream, so he sees it. God gives Daniel the interpretation so that he can accurately tell Nebuchadnezzar what it means. If we want to see humility in action, how do Christians live in a world where we're often accused of being bigots, of being hateful and stuff, and all the other monikers that we gain because of our commitment to Scripture? One of the things we can take from Daniel is Daniel is not cross. He's not, intentional, he's not intentionally oppositional or confrontational or cantankerous. What does he do? He knows Nebuchadnezzar. He knows the evil that lives in him. He knows the evil of Babylon. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar's blitz over the known world when he was becoming king, when he was the crown prince and his father's general and when he became king, is not an easy read. What he did to peoples and conquered peoples is devastating. And yet Daniel... Maybe a little bit of self-preservation here, but I think an example for us to take. How does Daniel begin the interpretation? You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory, into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of heaven, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. What does Daniel just do? He acknowledges that in some human way, there is some greatness in Nebuchadnezzar. Now, I'm going to come back around to this in just a moment, but to show deference to Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel does this. He acknowledges, even in the face of great evil, that Nebuchadnezzar has done some things that by the world's standards are great. But did you notice this little phrase in here that is so interesting, and you can't read this and miss this, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, into whose hand he has given where they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. What is Daniel acknowledging? Whatever Nebuchadnezzar has been able to do, it's come by God's grace. It's come by God's strength. It's come by God's power. It's come by God's gift. What is the subtle message there? Though you're great in a human way, there is one who is greater than you. There is one who, if he removed the power from you, you would be nothing. In fact, it's not much different than Jesus standing before Pontius Pilate when Pilate declares to him so full of passion, don't you know that I have the power to free you or to kill you? Do you remember Jesus' response? You would have no power over me if it were not given you from above. In the face of death, what a bold answer. Daniel is essentially telling Nebuchadnezzar the same thing. You would have none of this if it had not been given you from the power above. One of the interesting things here is if you look at the authority that the king has been given, where he says the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of heaven making you ruler over them all, it is very reminiscent of the Genesis narrative, the way that God speaks of Adam, that Adam would have dominion over all the earth, that he would be over the field, he would be over the birds of the heavens, that he would have a sort of world-like dominion, which is exactly what... Uh, Daniel is saying of Nebuchadnezzar. He had kind of come to this place of world domination. And as mysterious as it may be, why in the world would God not only allow this but give it to him? Th to those questions, uh, there's no real good answer. 
we would have to confess, I'm not sure. But God had a purpose and he had a plan to bring kingdoms up and to bring kingdoms down, and this fit into that plan. So Daniel begins to launch into the dream after this show of due deference by saying uh, in verse 38, you are the head of gold. So he's noting that Nebuchadnezzar, and so let's read these together, not just Babylon, but Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon are the head of gold. So whatever we say about the image and whatever kingdoms follow it, there's no mistaking that. We understand that Babylon remains the head of gold. Now, the successive kingdoms becomes a place of controversy, and it really shouldn't, but it is. And there's a few, I'm only going to make a few comments about this right here, right now. Historically, when people saw this image and they thought about the successive kingdoms that came, it made absolute sense for them to say, okay, well, the silver is Medo-Persia, who would come in right after Babylon. The bronze is Greece, who would come in through Alexander the Great, and then the breaking up of his worldwide kingdom. And then the iron mixed with clay was Rome. And historically speaking, it's actually right. That is how you'd want to understand that image. Because historically, that's exactly how human history unfolded with successive kingdoms conquering other kingdoms to take over at that point, which was most of the known world. Here's the thing. It's debated, and let me tell you why. It's debated because as textual criticism grew in later years, people began to look at this and say, there is no way that a man in 602 or 605 B.C. was able to interpret a dream with that level of accuracy. No way. Right down to Rome being iron mixed with clay and not being cohesive and having all these places all over the world that weren't really congealed under the Roman head. I mean, they were to some degree, but Rome was constantly dealing with rebellion because of the expansive nature of their empire. People look at that and say, there is no way he wrote that then because he couldn't have been that accurate. Or people try to criticize and say, well, it's really... Uh, other types of variants of countries or kingdoms that come. And beloved, here's the thing. A, as I told you before, who these kingdoms are is not of a special importance. Why do people try to label them here? Well, there's a reason. Because in Daniel 7 and 8, we're going to come back round to these types of things. And to go ahead and get it down here makes it easier to interpret there. So historically, I agree. I think it is Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome that Daniel is talking about. It makes the most sense. And if you look at human history, there's no doubt about that's who follows Babylon. Is it essential for us to identify that here? No, it is absolutely not essential because that's not the point. So we're not told who these kingdoms are, but interestingly, we are told who Babylon is. What did Daniel want us to know? He wanted us to know that Babylon is the head of gold, and he wanted us to know that there were successive kingdoms after that, and he wanted us to know that a stone not cut by human hands is going to come and crush them all. He's telling Babylon, you're not going to stand. God will. That's what's most important. But it is interesting that the metals grow more inferior, but they grow more durable. Something to be said of the third kingdom, the one of bronze. It says that in verse 39, which shall rule over all the earth. Now, that is actually, that statement is a great case for understanding that third bronze kingdom to be Greece and Alexander the Great, and I'll tell you why. Still in his 20s, Alexander the Great conquered the known world. In fact, it's apocryphal most likely, but it's a great story. When he finally had conquered everything, he wept, it is said, because there was nothing left to conquer. 
There was no one left to beat. He'd beaten them all. And so when we think about that bronze kingdom, it makes a lot of sense that it would be Alexander the Great and then what would become Greece, or Alexander the Great and what would become Greece, because he did in some sense rule the earth. And in some sense he possessed a power that was seemingly unbeatable. When we're looking at all these kingdoms, that's the rub. You're looking at a power that seems like in a moment you can't beat it. And that's the beauty of Daniel. We may be looking at powers in our lives right now or seeing things globally on our own political uh, spectrum that we think, this can't be beat. But there is a power that beats it. It's the power of God. It's the power of the Lord. The fourth kingdom, he talks about being a mixture of clay and iron. And then, of course, he spells out why he says it that way. It's a mixture of strength and weakness. It's a mixture of something strong and durable that can shatter things into pieces and a mixture of things that are easily broken. He talks about them lack, that kingdom lacking real cohesion. Strong, but not all-powerful. Strong, but not united. Rome seems to very easily fit into that category. But what is interesting here to me, and he says in verse 44, and in the days of those kings... The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. So the kings of these kingdoms, what does Daniel tell us? It see, they see the kingdom of God come. They see the true power of God. They behold it. How? Because Daniel is giving us a history as the kingdom of God, or as the kingdom of men are built and destroyed, built and destroyed, built and destroyed, the kingdom of God is being built. It's being built. It's being built. It's being built in every age. And all the kingdoms of the world, all the kings of the world, people who would set themselves in opposition to God while they come and they go, while they see their own mortality, there is something growing among humanity that can't be harnessed. You can't imprison it. You can't just stamp it out. You can't just kill it out. You can't just silence it because in the face of chains, it grows. In the face of silence, it grows. In the face of death, it grows. In the face of persecution, it grows. In the face of hardship, it grows. It's called the kingdom of God. Ask China how they're doing with it. Ask China how they're being able to manage the kingdom of God. They're not. They are imprisoning people. I pray for the early rain church weekly. They're imprisoning and killing. What's it doing? It's causing the kingdom of God to grow because kingdoms of man come. China will come and go. The kingdom of God is forever. And so you have this real, the, so the real focus of the dream then becomes the kingdom of God being established. Yes, Nebuchadnezzar can cast people into furnaces, and he will. Yes, he can have his magicians, his astrologers, his wise men killed. He tried. What he cannot do is kill the truth of God. And Daniel and his friends remain faithful. Only God's kingdom is victorious. And you know why? Because it shall stand forever. Right here in the text. It shall stand forever. And when we think about the power of God versus the power of man... You may say, Brad, but we witness all kinds of evil in our world. We see horrible things. We see people killed. We see people tortured. We see uh, nations fall. Where is God then? Exactly where he's always been, 
reigning, ruling, raising up a people. Martin Luther was right, let good and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body, not they may kill, they will kill eventually, but God's truth abides still because his kingdom is forever. That's Daniel's point, should be our, the hope in our life. That's not, a, that's not a small thing, right? That's not a small thing. What is the aftermath of all this? Verse 45, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, that it broke into pieces, the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and the interpretation is sure. This is it. In other words, this is inevitable. This is inevitable. So what is, how does Nebuchadnezzar respond? We get that in the final four verses of this chapter. Interestingly enough, then Nebuchadnezzar fell upon, the, upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. You know literally what this says? Then Nebuch- King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and worshipped Daniel and commanded that offering and incense be offered up to him. Interesting, isn't it? And it's interesting that the book of Daniel is kind of silent on this aspect. You remember when you think about the book of Revelation and John is tempted to fall down at the feet of the angel and worship, the angel's like, get up. You know, don't worship me. I'm not the guy. It's interesting that Daniel doesn't do that here. We have no real understanding as to why he doesn't. I don't really think it much matters. Why does Nebuchadnezzar do this? That's the question. Well, as a a good polytheist here, Nebuchadnezzar understands that Daniel would be a mediator between God and the world. So when Nebuchadnezzar pays homage or worships Daniel, he's not necessarily worshiping Daniel, the person per se. He's offering worship to Yahweh through Daniel, which is still not right because we understand that idolatry or how we worship God is just as important as what we worship. And so this would be false worship. However, that's what's going on here. But it's interesting that as a polytheist, you might say, how in the world could Nebuchadnezzar Uh, say, truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. He says some great things there. How in the world could he say that? Well, let me tell you, as a good polytheist, there's nothing remarkable about what he does. A good polytheist can acknowledge the power of another God in any culture, because a good polytheist is not beholden to one God. They can recognize that there are other gods throughout the universe, and they have power. So the question is, is would his life line up with his confession? And of course, we know that it doesn't. The very next chapter, we're told about this monstrosity that he builds and wants people to worship. So whatever he confesses here, he immediately forgets. So in other words, he sees something that's true about God, but it doesn't transition to salvation. How clear is that in our own day? You can hear what we'll call someone who might even be described as a gentle God-fearer. Oh, I believe that God is true. I believe that God is real. I believe that God has majesty. But there's no relationship there. There is no commitment there. There is no real sense of his superiority in my life, i.e., I believe he's true, but it makes no difference in how I live. That is glaring. And it's always been glaring. It's not unique to our time. It's not unique to this time. It's just a human reality. And so when we think about this, we need to understand that people do this in our very own time. They try to pay God as a moral being, and so I'm more or less moral, and that's good. And is it good to be moral? Yeah, you should be. 
Is that the end all be all? Is that what makes you who and what you are? Is that what makes you a Christian? Absolutely not. It is something deeper than that. That morality flows out of a relationship with Yahweh. It's not the cause of it. Well, I love here that Nebuchadnezzar extols the character of God, that even pagans must sometimes give praise, that even pagans must sometimes acknowledge the truth, that even pagans must sometimes acknowledge what is glaring and obvious, which is the supremacy of our God. This this chapter ends... Daniel having high honors, many great gifts. He was ruler over the world, over the whole province of Babylon, chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. What does this tell us? Well, obviously, Daniel is rewarded for doing the right thing and for being faithful. But what, is, what, what, what challenge can it give us as Christians? To not isolate, to not bury our head in the sand, to... And to be where, to live where we are, to be where we are, to serve where we are, and to extol the Lord where we are. That doesn't always mean we're going to get high honors and blessing, but I think if we're going to live in the city of man, which we currently are, there are ways in which we can live for the good of God and to love other human beings created in the image of God in a way that is excellent and God-glorifying. Sometimes we'll be honored for it, and sometimes we'll be hated for it. But whether we're honored or hated or whether we're honored, that should never drive our consistency. Our consistency should be for the glory of God, for the audience of one. Because where we are, I love how God gave Daniel and and, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he uses their Babylonian names here, influence in the city, influence in a pagan city. For the sheer purpose of his name moving forward, his kingdom being built, and for his glory. God can use you right where you are. In whatever way he can use you, we have an opportunity to serve him in front of a watching world, to jeers, to accusations, and to the praise of Yahweh. The power of God really is our blessing and hope. Worldly powers do seem formidable in a moment. Rulers can imprison They can bully, they can intimidate, and they can ultimately kill. God's Word, it consistently shows us that the power of man can be a brutal reality. It really can. But it will not have the last word. Jesus came to solidify the power of God by conquering sin and death. And the stone that Daniel saw in the dream is ultimately realized in Jesus, the one who comes to crush all worldly powers. He comes to crush. He comes to dismantle. He comes to make as nothing. Jesus is God's answer to sin, death, and the world. He's God's answer to this image. Jesus is the divine response to all powers. And we don't make light of the powers of the world, but you know what? We trust in a greater power in the name of Jesus who gives us freedom, who gives us hope, and who gives us peace in turmoil. So this image that Daniel sees, that Nebuchadnezzar sees, is a message to the world. Yes, it's strong. Yes, it's tall. Yes, it looks formidable. But the stone of God crushes it into oblivion 
So have faith, have hope, and continue to live for him. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for this word this morning and its beauty, its power, its truth. Thank you for your mercies. Thank you for the time to be together. I pray that this message would reach the very core of our hearts. It would truly transform who we are and that your hope would fill us. God, give us grace, I pray. Renew our strength, I pray. Help us to stand for you, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.